Amen. You may be seated. Well, as I said earlier, it's a special privilege to have uh, Daniel Dorman with us, especially in light of the recent birth of his son. I had to check in a couple times and uh, say, hey, you good? I, I got a plan B. Um, and my plan B would have been just to ask you all to share with, with us here this morning. Um, because I wasn't going to prepare a sermon in, you know, short notice like that. But um, regardless, we are thankful to have you with us and to share from God's word. So Daniel, um, I'd like to just pray for you quickly before you begin. So God, we thank you for Daniel and his now family of three. I pray firstly for uh, this season for him and Fiona as they adjust to parenthood and all of the joys and the occasional challenges that that brings. We pray now for Daniel as he shares from your word. Would you be a vessel of your love, hope, and truth this morning? Amen. Amen. Thanks, Justin. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for being here on January 1st uh, of the new year. Um, yeah, let, let's jump right in. I, I'm just going to grab my Bible. All right, let's, uh, we're going to look at, at Luke 2. So actually, um, some of the, the passage immediately following the Christmas story is where we'll look this morning. Uh, and let's start at Luke 2, uh, verse 21. So you can turn there if, if you'd like. Yeah. Uh, and at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And I thought as we, we start out, you know, at this point in, in the Christmas story and, and following, uh, Jesus is a, a very small baby. Um, and I thought, well, you know, not everybody knows what, what babies look like until recently. I, I didn't, so I think we have a slide. There it is. Um, that's, that's what you call, I'm going to need that. That's what you call a thinly veiled excuse to put up a, a picture of <laughs> Philip. Um, Thanks. <laughs> All right, let's keep going. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. Luke 2, starting in verse 22, and this is where we'll focus this morning. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, 
Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Would you guide us as we look at the figures of Anna and Simeon? Would you inspire us through their exemplary faithfulness and wisdom? And would you allow us to marvel at your son, Jesus? Remind us of all he accomplished for us and of your gentle love for us. Remind us of your desire for us to grow in you and to proclaim your name. Would you draw us to yourself this morning through your word? In Jesus' name. So I think the the first thing that we ought to grapple with in our passage this morning, the thing that maybe should surprise us or or shock us is just the, the figures of Anna and Simeon, that they really are exceptional in the Gospels that the the clarity with which they perceive who the infant Jesus is and even who he is going to become and what he's going to be going to accomplish the the way that in which they they so quickly realize that Jesus is the Messiah is actually exceptional in scripture Anna and Simeon are are profound models of faithfulness And I think this is perhaps especially poignant, especially obvious, uh, if we've already read the book of Mark, the book immediately preceding the book of Luke, of course, in in our scriptures. Because the book of Mark is written uh, a little bit like a detective story. In Mark, we jump in and we see Jesus doing all these different things, healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching in the temple, We get all these different clues to his character, and we know that there were theories going around about who he might be. But even his family and his disciples, they never quite get it. They never quite believe it. Mark goes so far as to say uh, that at one point in Mark 3.21, it says his family thought he was out of his mind. Right? If we read the Gospel of Mark plainly, directly, we might say that the, the disciples were a bit, a bit thick-headed, a bit slow to see who Jesus was. Definitely earnest and, and faithful disciples, but slow to call Jesus the Messiah. And that, that changes in about halfway through the book of Mark. In Mark 8, verses 27 to 29, it says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. 
And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And it's this climactic moment in the book of Mark. Almost halfway through the book, and for the first time, his disciples confidently say, you are the Christ. Peter, empowered by the Holy Spirit, finally recognizes Jesus as the coming Messiah. So with that context, we can turn back to our story in Luke. And, and our hearts ought to burn a little. We ought to ask, how do we become like Anna and Simeon? How do we become prepared, as they were prepared, to recognize Jesus and to testify to who Jesus is? How do we, like Anna and Simeon, bind our life's purpose to knowing Jesus and to proclaiming Jesus? How do we wait so expectantly as they did? I wrote in my notes here, do we not long for the depth of faith and the deep assurance of salvation that Simeon expresses when he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. I think we ought to long to be like Anna and Simeon. And so if we long to be like Anna and Simeon, to, to follow their exemplary faithfulness and wisdom, what hints does our text give us about the source of Anna and Simeon's faith and insight? And I think they're not necessarily novel or, yeah, not, not new things, but I think our text gives us three pretty clear hints. I think we have a slide for this. Yeah. We see that Anna and Simeon have an incredibly deep knowledge of Scripture and a biblical worldview, a deeply informed biblical view of the world around them. They have a daily relationship with the Holy Spirit and a deep pursuit of God through spiritual discipline. So that's sort of our, our outline, the three, three points that we'll look at today at the characters of Simeon and Anna. To start with, a deep knowledge of Scripture. I think it's important for us to, to realize that Simeon's worldview, his whole understanding of, of his life personally, um, his expectations for the meaning of his own life and, and the lens through which he, he understood the, the political and social world around him was wrapped up entirely in God's word and in the promises of God. Simeon saw the world around him through scripture. He trusted the promises of scripture. Uh, and I think in particular, we can understand that Simeon uh, was an expert on the book of Isaiah particularly the book of Isaiah, because it says in verse 25 that Simeon was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the consolation, consolation of Israel, is sort of a, a particular phrase. Consolation could also be translated as uh, to come alongside, to offer solace, or to comfort. And it comes quite directly from Isaiah 40, verses one and two. It says, uh, says this, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her 
that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Right? And so the whole book of Isaiah, particularly actually from right at that moment, chapter 40 to the end, um, anticipates the return from exile as the consolation or the comfort of Israel. And so when it says that Israel was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, he's waiting for the promises of God in Isaiah to be fulfilled. And then even beyond that, both of the blessings that Simeon speaks, that Simeon gives to Jesus and to to Mary, are proclamations that prophecies from the book of Isaiah would be fulfilled or are being fulfilled in the person of Jesus. And it's a little technical, but just briefly, I want us to look at those references because I think it's beautiful to see the intricate use of Scripture in Scripture. So the first blessing, Simeon in verse 30 to 32 says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And these verses are it points almost word for word a, a fulfillment of Isaiah 49.6, right? Which proclaims that the Messiah will be a light to the nations and that salvation would reach to the ends of the earth, right? Again, Simeon is understanding who Jesus is and what he's going to accomplish through the lens of scripture. In the second blessing, this word to Mary that he gives, Simeon anticipates that Jesus, as the Messiah, was going to need to suffer. That his suffering would cause division in Israel and even personal pain to Mary. Right? Well, how did he know? He knew because of the book of Isaiah. In verse 34 our passage of our passage, Simeon says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. We can understand Simeon's second blessing. It's almost this poetic, profound application of both Isaiah 8, 14, where the Messiah is seen as a rock of stumbling or a stone of offense to some in Israel, and the famous passage from Isaiah 53, where the Messiah is pictured as suffering in order to redeem the world from sin. And so in this poetic way, in this blessing to Mary, Simeon is tying together these messianic prophecies from Isaiah. That was a lot pretty quick, but the point is this. Simeon knows Isaiah. He knows his scriptures. He trusted in God's promises. And because of that, he had an incredible and exceptional insight into who Jesus was and who he would become and what he was going to accomplish and how he was going to accomplish it. And that's incredible. A deep knowledge of the scriptures, that's our first point. Our second point, walking with the Holy Spirit. And I'm gonna read a little bit of our passage again, starting at verse 25 says this, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, 
waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ, and he came in the Spirit into the temple. So we have three verses, and three times in those three verses, it said that Simeon had the Holy Spirit, right? It says pretty explicitly that the Holy Spirit empowers Simeon's recognition of Jesus. Later in scripture, Jesus will describe the Holy Spirit as our helper and our teacher and the source of our power both personally to turn from sin and live in obedience and as the power of the church to testify to who Jesus is. And I think we get a little glimpse, a little proto-glimpse, a little, a little moment of that. We get to witness that power of the Spirit in Simeon. I want to read a, a, a quote from the pastor Francis Chan from his book, Forgotten God. Um, it's, it's a little bit cliche and funny, but it, I think it's also poignant and a good reminder of, of the, the Spirit's necessary role in our lives. I think this, yeah, perfect. Thanks, Clement. Years ago, when a random thought came into my head, I decided to share it with my wife. Have you ever wondered what caterpillars think about, I asked. Not surprisingly, she said no. I then proceeded to tell her about the confusion I imagine a caterpillar must experience. For all its caterpillar life, it crawls around a small patch of dirt and up and down a few plants. Then one day, it takes a nap, a long nap, and then what in the world must go through its head when it wakes up to discover it can fly? What happened to its dirty, plump, little worm body? What does it think when it sees its tiny, new body and gorgeous wings? As believers, we ought to experience this same kind of astonishment when the Holy Spirit enters our bodies. We should be stunned in disbelief over becoming a new creation with the Spirit living in us. As the caterpillar finds its new ability to fly, we should be thrilled over our spirit-empowered ability to live differently and faithfully. Isn't this what the scriptures speak of? Isn't this what we've all been longing for? And perhaps I would add, isn't that what we see in Simeon? Simeon is a profound model of that spirit-filled life. And if we strive for his faithfulness in wisdom, if we long to experience the abundant life promised us in scripture, again, if we long to say with Simeon, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, we ought to strive to be in deep and daily relationship with the Holy Spirit. So that's our second point. Our third point, our third hint into the incredible characters of Anna and Simeon is this. Um, that they clearly pursued God in spiritual discipline. I won't read the whole passage again. I think maybe we've all been up a little later than normal and uh, maybe we're not ready for that. But a short summary of Anna's life 
Our scripture says that she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. So if you put those pieces together, it means that she had probably lived as a widow for more than 60 years, for decades, for the better part of a century. And living as a widow in ancient culture, particularly a culture heavily influenced by Roman law, meant that she couldn't own her own property, and she was almost certainly destitute. Right? That when her husband died, she was robbed of a normal life in society, that she was robbed of any sense of economic security, that she spent all her time in the temple tells us that she probably had no family to take her in. Essentially, when we think of Anna, I think we can see someone who was probably a victim of political injustice for decades. With the context of knowing what it meant to be a widow in the ancient world, I think we can understand that Anna's life was marked by hardship. But even through that suffering, it says in verse Verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Right? In spite of Anna's sufferings, or even because of Anna's sufferings, she was pushed to wait diligently for God, for Jesus' coming. The world around us is full of injustice and brokenness, and our lives are full of injustice and brokenness. And we can allow that to make us bitter. We can allow that to make us feel like victims. We can waste hours of mental energy reflecting on life's unfairness. Or we can allow that brokenness to lead us into a longing and an expectation for Jesus. Our lives are full of injustice and brokenness. And we can allow that to make us feel like victims. We can reflect on life's unfairness. Or we can allow that brokenness to lead us into a longing and an expectation for Jesus as Anna does. Our text goes on to say that Anna did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer day and night. Right? Anna was spiritually disciplined, even clearly worshipful, despite her circumstances. Anna was materially probably very poor. She probably had very little. But spiritually, she was rich. A number of years ago now, I was at Tyndale University, and a professor was put on the spot somebody just put up their hand and said, well, can you define spiritual discipline? And the professor gave an incredible answer. He said simply that it was, that spiritual discipline is giving up things of the world to receive things of God. Turning from material wealth for the sake of spiritual wealth. Giving up things of this world to receive things of God. 
and I think especially in our culture and age, even if things have maybe economically been a little rocky for the past year, we still live in, in what is almost incomparable economic prosperity. In world history, we're, we're the richest of the rich, right? And I think we actually live in an age where our physical comforts can blind us to our spiritual needs. Our insurance policies and our universal healthcare systems, good things, but I think that they can give us a, a false security and blind us to our spiritual need. Right? We live in a, a decadent age. If you look at the, a definition of that word decadence, it might be uh, an age of, of spiritually dangerous physical prosperity. And so all that's to say, that's not to, to be frightening, it's just to say that in an age of wealth, we need spiritual discipline that much more, right? We desperately need to pursue God in worship and prayer and in studying scripture and just giving God our time and attention. Even particularly maybe in fasting. It says that Anna was, was worshiping with prayer and fasting night and day. I think in fasting, we, we say to God, <clears throat> I desire your grace in my heart more than food in my stomach today. I know I can't live on bread alone. I need to be sustained by your spirit more than I need anything else. I think if we're always full, physically, maybe mentally full, mentally busy, it's pretty easy to drown out our need for God in something simple like food or in all the distractions that life offers us. It's easy to miss God in, in our world today. So we need spiritual discipline like Anna had beautiful spiritual discipline. So a recap, three, three points. If we're to be found faithful and waiting, prepared for the Lord as Anna and Simeon were, we need to pursue a deep knowledge of scripture. We need to wrap our lives in scripture. We need to see the world around us through scripture. We need a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And we need spiritual discipline. We need to turn away from material decadence. So how do we do that? How do we get there? Because I think many of us or most of us would say that pursuing God in Scripture um, and pursuing God's Spirit and pursuing spiritual discipline uh, sound wonderful, um, theoretically maybe. But often, I think we find these things difficult in practice. And maybe you're entering this year already worn out. Maybe there's something that you're struggling to trust God with. Some sin, some wrong in your life you're struggling to turn from. 
Or maybe you've already been trying to set better habits for a year or 10 years or 30 years, and some things feel forever out of reach. Maybe you're like me and you let discouragement that you're not where you think you should be with God and in faith stop you from doing the things that you should do, the things in front of you. If that sounds relevant this morning as we enter a new year, I just say that, want to say that God is a good father. And he really is ready to meet us wherever we are. In Hebrews 12, Jesus is called the author and the perfecter of our faith. The author and the perfecter. He birthed faith in us and he will carry it to completion. I hope you can enter this year with that comfort. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote this. He said, Peter couldn't affect his own conversion, but he could drop his nets. Peter couldn't affect his own conversion, but he could drop his nets. Too often, I think we let ourselves feel powerless and discouraged that we're not where we want to be in faith when the truth is that God is ready and eager to draw near to us, ready to move in our hearts, ready to do miraculous things, ready to do things that feel impossible, ready to break through into our lives and our hearts if we would just drop our nets, meaning if we would trust him and follow him. And I think when we do choose obedience in small ways, we open up a door for God to move in our lives. Peter couldn't affect his own conversion, but he could drop his nets. So I want us to, to close off the, the sermon time this morning just in a moment of, of prayer. And what I'd like us to do is we'll just all bow our heads together and I'm gonna, just gonna read some questions. Um, give us some time to reflect, some time to talk to God or to hear from God, maybe based on the questions I read, maybe based on just what God is saying to you this morning. Um, so let's do that, let's bow our heads. What act of obedience can I give to God this week? Is God calling me to fast for a day this week? Is God calling me to fast even just from a single meal? Is mindless social media scrolling robbing me of peace and an active prayer life? Can I cancel a streaming service subscription with the intention of giving more time to the study of God's word? Can I commit to memorizing a scripture this week or this month?
Is there something I need to do to open myself up to the work of the Holy Spirit in my heart? Have I allowed a hardship in my life to make me feel like a victim instead of learning to long deeply for Christ? Is there a habit in my life that I need to confess to someone and turn from? Or is there a virtue, a good habit in life that I can commit to more fully? What act of obedience can I give to God this week? I'm going to close us in a prayer for sanctification written by A.W. Tozer. I think if we can start our year earnestly praying these words, we will have started our year very well. So let's pray together. Father, I want to know thee, but my coward heart fears to give up its toys. I cannot part with them without inward bleeding, and I do not try to hide from thee the terror of the parting. I come trembling, but I do come. Please root from my heart all those things which I have cherished so long and which have become a very part of my living self, so that thou mayest enter and dwell there without a rival. Then shall my heart have no need of the sun to shine in it, for thyself wilt be the light of it and there shall be no night there. In Jesus' name, amen.